You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire. One hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Joe tōku ingoa, no mai haere mai ki te wire mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Ramere Friday the 18th of November. Uh, my name is Joe. I'll be your host with you for the next hour. I'm with my two producers, David and Danielle. How are you guys going today? Good, yeah, good. good, good. Good, good. Very, very good. nice. Uh, we have a very, very stacked show for you guys today. Um, first up, I'll be speaking to Greenpeace's James Heater, who confronted a deep sea mining ship off the coast of Mexico last week. I also spoke to Dr. Nick Mann from the University of Waikato about justifying lowering the voting age. Our news director here at 95BFM, Jessica Hopkins, spoke to White Ribbon Day Ambassador Floyd Ormsby about teaching and role modeling healthy masculinity. Uh, Daniel, who did you speak to today? I spoke with Anita Azim. She did a research in uh, gender stereotypes in Disney movies. And I spoke with... You also spoke to, um, who was it? You spoke to, uh, Waka Kuta- was it someone from Wakakotahi today about the um, lowering the speed limit? Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, true. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, David, who did you have today? I spoke to Otago University's Ben Wheeler about a life-saving diabetes treatment. We have a great show for you guys today, so keep it on the B for the next hour. Here at Hafakaro, we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So Tokipato we might, you can text us on 5395, Waimai or give us a call in studio on 0930938793. Also remember you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website. Now, let's get into the wire for Ramede Friday. Why should New Zealanders care so much about this? Because your children will curse you if you don't. The Wire. This week, the Supreme Court has made a judgment on lowering New Zealand's legal voting age. The court has accepted the claims made by members of the Make It 16 campaign that the current voting age limit of 18 is inconsistent with Section 19 of the New Zealand Bill of of Rights Act. Essentially, preventing 16 and 17-year-olds from voting discriminates them against, sorry, discriminates against them on the basis of their age. The court also accepted that this inconsistency has not been justified. While that doesn't mean that the age limit cannot be justified, the New Zealand Bill of Rights, uh, so the so the declarations of inconsistency within the New Zealand Bill of Rights, sorry, uh, means legislation can be found to be inconsistent with the Bill of Rights itself. The decision effectively means Parliament now has to defend the 18 age limit uh, if it wants to keep uh, it, essentially. Now, I spoke to Dr. Nick Munn from the University of Waikato on this matter to really kind of clear up some of the confusion that, the confusion which surrounds um, the Supreme Court's judgment, judgment. And I started off by getting his thoughts on this. Here he is now. I think it's a really good uh, decision. I'm glad that they made it. And I think that it's quite encouraging as someone who's been arguing for a lower voting age for a while to see the Labour government take on board the decision of the court and rather than simply opening the matter up for debate, introduce a bill to lower the voting age, even though they don't necessarily think they'll be able to get the 75% of votes required to make it pass, they're still doing it. So that's uh, that's really 
positive for the possibility of eventually actually having 16 and 17 year olds able to vote here. There are arguments on both sides of the coin in terms of whether or not it is justified to let 16 slash 17 year olds vote. Obviously these range from, you know, they don't pay tax so they shouldn't vote or they're too young or too inexperienced. Uh, What are your thoughts on these criticisms and are they valid? I don't think that there are any very good arguments against it. But of the ones that you just mentioned, so I think it's just wrong to say that young people don't pay tax, not least because if they're ever purchasing anything for themselves, they're paying GST, but also because large numbers of 16 and 17-year-olds are already working. And so for anyone who's working, they're paying tax. For anyone who's not, they're paying tax by a GST on basically anything they ever spend money on. Um, So in that instance, it's just kind of, Uh, misguided to try and claim that this group don't pay tax in the same way that it would be misguided to point to, say, beneficiaries and try to claim that they don't pay tax. They still, in each case, obviously do. Um, As for the other arguments, uh, it's it's tempting to to worry that uh, young people, maybe they're inexperienced, maybe they don't know enough about how to vote, or maybe you worry that they lack maturity, something like this. And there's a quite simple response to all of this, I think, which is that we don't actually judge adults with regards to their maturity or their knowledge or their competence. We just let any and all adults vote simply because they're over the age of 18. So if you then turn around and say, well, we're going to exclude young people because they they don't know enough or they're not experienced enough or whatever, they're not mature enough. Why are we holding these young people to the standard and not holding adults to the standard? I think we should be consistent here and only only use these kind of arguments as reasons to exclude people if we're willing to apply them to anyone that would be targeted by them. So I'm sure you can imagine or think of people you know who are 30, 40, 50, and are wildly mature or don't care at all about politics or have actively, deliberately insane views, Uh, they're all perfectly entitled to vote. So again, it it just kind of feels as though these arguments are trying to appeal to something about voting, which we don't care about for the people who we do let vote. A very good argument for lowering the voting age has it could improve voter turnout. Voting from a young age increases the likelihood people will become regular voters and get more involved with politics in general. I, I think that the benefits would very clearly outweigh it. And you've touched on quite a lot of them. So there's a there's a constant argument that young people don't vote enough, right? So voter turnout amongst the 18 to 24 or 25, wherever you're measuring it to, age group is very low. And if we look at other countries that have lowered the voting age to 16, so a place like Austria, which has had, I think, four, maybe five electoral cycles now with a voting age of 16, what you see is that the turnout in that age group, which is now 16 to, say, 24, has increased. And it looks as though the reason that's happened 
is because when you let people vote at a younger age, they just get into the habit of it while they're still in a safe, secure environment. Most 16-year-olds are living at home compared to, say, 18 or 19-year-olds are at university or they've moved away or they're you know, out in, in the workforce or something. And so when you let these younger people vote, they do so, and having done so, they'll just keep on voting. And that gives you this increased voter turnout, which uh, parties from across the political spectrum will all say is desirable, right? Everyone wants more citizens to vote. So it looks like we have some evidence that lowering the voting age is a way to increase turnout overall and particularly amongst this group that traditionally don't vote much. Well, those are the main questions I had, Nick. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring up? I think it is quite a hard point to make, but one thing which is worth mentioning is that I don't necessarily think that the there's a worry people have, uh, particularly if, if, you're, if you lean right-wing, you might be worried that introducing uh, 16 and 17-year-olds to the franchise will increase the vote to the left, right? And I don't necessarily think that that's going to be true because we've got plenty of evidence that plenty of young people also uh, have kind of right or right of centre views. The the young Nats exist just like young Labour exists. Uh, They're both both entities that happen, right? So you don't necessarily have to worry about that so much. And I think that Overall, any any worries of this kind would be overwhelmed by the benefits we could get by uh, teaching young people about politics from an earlier age, trying to get them invested, trying to get them to care about how to make Aotearoa and the world better in the future. And whether, whether having done that learning, these young people decide that they want to vote left or they want to vote right it's much more important that they're voting than it is how they vote. That was Dr Nick Munn from the University of Waikato speaking about justifying lowering the voting age. So around, you know, up to eight or 10,000. Shit. The wire. Today is White Ribbon Day, an annual campaign aiming to prevent men's violence by teaching and role modelling healthy masculinity. This year the day is focused on tackling the causes of violence. News and Editorial Director Jessica Hopkins spoke to White Ribbon Day Ambassador Floyd Ormsby, who is encouraging people to show kindness towards our young men and to let them know that men can be caring, supportive, ethical, respectful, friendly, generous and awesome. They start off their interview discussing White Ribbon Day and the message Ormsby wants people to take from his own experience. White Ribbon Day, the theme for this year is teaching that young boys that it's okay to boys. The the old analogy of boys being boys is it connects with the old adage of being man of the house and stepping up and being tough and boys don't cry and all of that kind of thing. And we're trying to re, we're trying to change that that and that that focus to hey it's actually okay for you just to be a boy and and get rid of this aggression that comes with it and basically start working towards changing violent attitudes and aggression and violence towards women and not only that but violence between men is what White Ribbon Day is all about. Yeah and that specific phrase boys will be boys we hear it a lot why can that phrase be so damaging? 
when you're when you're brought up to, for example, uh, what started me on this road was a young lad that I started mentoring. Uh, his father had been killed in a car accident. He started getting all of this. Oh, you're now the man of the house, and these are the expectations of you, and so on and so forth. And quite frankly, he took that on board and didn't have the time to grieve, and he actually didn't know how to deal with it. So that's probably one of the worst-case analogies, but it's kind of making an excuse for poor behaviour. Oh, they're just boys being boys. Well, when you're bullying or being aggressive towards young girls, you know, these are kids at school uh, picking on girls or young girls or or other other boys, and they say, oh, it's just boys being boys, let, leave them alone, let it go. Well, no, you can't let it go. You can't let bullying continue. We need to stop people using boys will be used, boys will, in that context. This particular White Ribbon Day is about addressing those underlying causes of violent behaviour. So can you talk about some of these underlying causes that may be causing men in particular to act in a violent way? It's all about, it's all about family at the end of the day. It's, a, it's about their environment. It's about the words parents use. It's about, say, uh, mothers on their own, parents, single-parent families where the parent is struggling to cope. Knowingly or unknowingly, they take their frustrations and uh, out on their boys and girls with the words that they use. So quite frankly, it, it all starts with understanding good communication. For example, a lot of families grow up believing that sarcasm is funny. Well, actually, 99% of the time, sarcasm is not funny, especially when there's an individual at the other end of it. It's actually bullying. So it starts It starts at the, at the family unit, and it starts with how we communicate to our kids. When we, in my case, I live with comments like, oh, you're going to be an asshole just like your father. I'm four, five, six years old, and I don't even know who this man is because he was never in the picture, suddenly I'm thinking, well, hang on, where's that coming from? We've got to be careful of the words that we choose that we choose to use as, as parents, as families, to our youngsters. I mean, even when my wife and I have got our grandchildren around, we might, one or, one or the other of us might let a comment slip, and I'll look at her or she'll look at me and say, oh, hang on. Um, we need to rephrase that. Can you talk a bit about, as an ambassador of White Ribbon Day, why it's so important to you? Because it's just, one, it shouldn't exist. We should be able to live in a society where, this this is very idealistic, where bullying doesn't exist and people are just generally respectful and nice to each other. And unfortunately that doesn't exist. And again, it comes back down to how we communicate and, and our upbringings and and that kind of thing. So again, it comes back down to how we communicate. You kind of touched on some ways that you're modelling or reframing the, the words that you're saying to your grandchildren, but can you maybe share with other men who may be listening how they can role model healthy, some ways that they can role model healthy masculinity? It's about constantly analysing your own behaviour and constantly analysing your own communications, how you speak how you speak to to people um, 
a classic example is as a as a high performance coach, I was refereeing a um, men's sevens game um, a couple of weeks ago, and I was actually being coached. Uh, I had a coach on the sideline, and there was quite a bit of aggression from um, one of the teams in particular. I addressed it with the with the two captains at half time about hey this 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 is not sportsmanship. This is just straight out aggression that we don't need on this paddock, and it's unacceptable to me. What happened was that I actually carried that because I my because my um, attitude, my level had come up a little bit, my tone had come up a little bit in dealing with that circumstance. I carried that through that second half, and my coach said to me afterwards. He said, "What you should have done was okay. You addressed it correctly at half time, but you should have brought yourself back down to okay. I've said it now. Park it, let it go, and carry on as you did the first half. Instead, that staunchness, if you like, for want of a better word, um, that slightly higher level of tone, sharper tone, whistle tone, what I my the way I spoke to the boys." when I issued a penalty or something like that, was a little bit sharper than what it needed to be. In terms of other men, we need to be constantly analysing our own performance, constantly analysing, hey, did I deal with that right? Can um, get, yourself and get yourself your own mentor, your own buddy, and say, hey, listen, this is what happened. Can, you, can, uh, can, we, can we talk this through? How could, I, how could I have dealt with that better? And it's an, on, it's an ongoing learning curve. It never stops. That was Floyd Ormsby, an ambassador for White Ribbon Day, speaking about the significance of White Ribbon Day. Jeez, cannot talk today. Um, as well as encouraging people to show kindness uh, towards young men. You're on the wire for Ramire Friday. Remember, you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 093093879. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you've heard so far. We'll be right back after this short break. For old times' <laughs> sake, yes or no, would you like to be leader of the National Party at some point? No, I'm just focused on what I'm doing. I'm one of those people that do it day by day, job by job. I'll save this clip and come back to it in five or ten years. <laughs> we'll see how it's aged. The Wire. Making her triumphant return to the stage, Faze Days is coming to the Hollywood Avondale, one night only, November 26. Her first time performing in New Zealand since 2020, Faze Days is celebrating her new EP, Break, with new music, new merch, cool zines, and support from Car Wash and Handy. Faze Days, Saturday, November 26 at the Hollywood Avondale. Final tickets on sale now from Under the Radar. Treat your feet at the Pat Menzies Shoes Black Friday Sale. On now! The home of footwear in Auckland since 1975, this is Pat Menzies' biggest sale of the year. Almost everything in store is 20 to 30% off. That means Doc Martens, Vans, Converse and more. 20 to 30% off. Don't miss Pat Menzies Shoes Black Friday Sale. Four days only. On now till this Monday. Canterbury Arcade, Queen Street. Excludes Birkenstock and some selected styles. 
on Saturday, November 26th, Beaten Path, have your party pants sorted. The official unofficial after party for Groove Amada, Beaten Path, are kicking off their summer series by taking over the mothership. From 10 to 4, settle in for a night of deep house, techno and late night summer goodness. With Beacon Bloom Live and DJ sets from Melbourne's Joe Miller, 121's Paul Crackle and local Sonoy and Mia Koba. Beaten Path Summer Series, Saturday, November 26th at the Mothership. Pre-sales just $20 from Humanitix or $30 door pressure on the night. Audio. Culture. Tune in to 95BFM Drive every second Tuesday as they're joined by one of our friends from Audio Culture, sharing the songs, stories and salacious scandal from which has woven the mighty tapestry of New Zealand music. Audio Culture, more cultured than a blue cheese with a BA. Every other Tuesday on 95BFM Drive. Thanks to Audio Culture. Iwi Waiata, the noisy library of New Zealand music. Go to audioculture.co.nz. I don't know, and, and frankly, the whole thing gives me the heebie-jeebies. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for It. I made it Friday. I will now pass it over to Daniel, who has his first piece here on the Friday Wire. Thank you. It seems New Zealand is about to slow down. Across the country, there are plans to lower the speed limits. These plans are part of the Road to Zero project, which assigned local councils to envision a plan with zero deaths and serious injuries on New Zealand's roads. According to Professor Human of human geography, Simon Kingham, this is the right thing to do. First question, what are the environmental benefits when we would slow the traffic down? Well, there's multiple benefits of slowing traffic down. Um, so, for instance, we know at carbon emissions, so greenhouse gas emissions, are lowest when vehicles are travelling between about 55 and 80 kilometres an hour. So if you reduce the speed limit in an rural area on a state highway, say from 100 to 80, you'll get reduced emissions. But we also know in urban areas, um, vehicles, you, what, you, what you actually want to do is try and keep vehicles moving smoothly. So you want to reduce the stopping and starting. And actually research has shown, for instance, that if you can get speed limits down to 30 kilometres an hour, that produces the lowest emissions. So one example is carbon emissions. You get a similar um, pattern for other emissions like um, nitrogen dioxide and particulates, so you get benefits there. But you also get really big benefits from communities, so it becomes a lot safer for kids to play outside, for instance. So if you want kids being able to walk to school safely, you want kids to be able to play on the street a bit, um, to walk to local playgrounds and parks, then you get huge benefits. Um, there as well and then noise as well so noise is reduced if vehicles are um, going slower and not accelerating and braking etc so there's multiple co-benefits of reducing speed there's also the argument that slowing drivers down and by extent prolonging the travel time and distance means the eco economy will suffer and what, what would be yeah. your answer to that yeah no and and if you slow traffic down there will be some increase in vehicle times but actually we know in urban areas particularly reducing speed limits from 50 to 30 for instance doesn't actually add much onto journeys so there's very little addition it, it, it may on some cases in in rural roads in state highways but we also know that if you make it easier for people to go further faster it actually encourages people to travel further than they would ordinarily so there's a wealth of research all around the world showing that people if you make the road much faster, they'll actually choose to travel further away. So it doesn't actually reduce, it doesn't actually increase their time getting to work. It just increases the distance they're prepared to travel. So you're right, there will be some increase 
um, and for some delivery drivers and, and etc. But actually, in our cities, it probably doesn't. It adds very little, if any, time on just because of the nature of congestion and busyness of roads and junctions and stopping and starting etc. You're right that reducing speed limits can also reduce inequity. So you state yeah. that road injury and death is disproportionately affecting Maori, younger people, and low-income communities. Could you yeah. explain this, and how can lowering the speed limit make society more fair and more just? Yeah, so so what we know is that um, disproportionately the number of people who are injured and die in crashes are young. Um, they are male, and, and the one that perhaps is the most shocking is that they're more likely to be Māori. So the fatality rates and the injury rates in crashes amongst Māori are much higher than, than everyone else. And so we know that a big contributor to crashes is speed um, and speed of vehicles. So if you reduce speed, you reduce accidents. You, you should be able to reduce inequity. We also know that um, people on lower incomes and, and different groups are more likely to need to use public transport and walking and cycling because of their income levels. Um, and what you find there is that if you slow traffic speeds down, you actually make other modes more attractive, more advantageous. If you make walking, cycling, and public transport more advantageous, you actually make it it's cheaper. It's a cheaper mode of transport, so you're helping people on low income. So there's multiple ways. And to the extent that one of the most well-known professors in the UK at Oxford University called Danny Dawling has written multiple books on equity, and most of the time he talks about structural equity and the way society is set up, and he actually concludes that reducing speed limits would be the biggest impact. And for a guy who's written so much and all these other reasons for inequity in society to conclude it's a traffic solution, I think it's pretty pretty compelling. So multiple reasons for that. I found it also really, really interesting that you state that reducing speed limits will make cities a better place to live in, like it will mm. con contribute to a good life. So yeah. could you give maybe an example of how reducing speed limits will make our lives happier? Yeah, I think what, what what we know is that if if you are walking to school, say a kid's walking to school or someone's cycling somewhere or you want to go and talk to your neighbours across the road, you're more likely to do all those things if the speed limits are lower. So if vehicles are travelling slower, it makes streets more attractive to walk on, it makes streets more attractive to cycle on. Kids could play basketball on the edge of their street and they're more likely to do all those sorts of things if traffic speeds are lower. <clears throat> we also know that social interaction, people get to know their neighbours more if, if the street's a bit calmer, so there's less traffic and slower traffic. So there's multiple ways that that works. Also, if air pollution's lower, that makes our lifestyle better. So there's lots of ways of just decalming our streets, just making traffic volumes a bit lower, traffic speeds a bit lower, actually makes our communities better places to live because they feel safer, they're quieter, they're less polluted, and they feel safer to walk and cycle to things as well. So there's multiple ways, and it just makes our, our lives better, and there's a whole heap of research that supports that and backs that up. You are also a chief science advisor for the New Zealand Ministry of Transport. Are there any plans in, the, in that ministry to reduce the speed limits the, that you know? Well, the government... Overall, the Road to Zero project, which is a project with the Ministry of Transport and Waka Katahi working with local government, is to try and reduce speed limits. And the main driver of that is Road to Zero. So it is about trying to make the road safer. So reduce the number of crashes, reduce the number of injuries and reduce the number of deaths. What is your expectation of that Road to Zero? What are the plans and how likely is it that they will be implemented? 
Yeah, so what, what's happening at the moment is the, the, the Waka Katahi is, con, is, try, is consulting on reducing speed limits on state highways, and a lot of our biggest cities, so certainly Wellington, Auckland, um, Christchurch, etc., are, are consult, putting out, they're putting out plans to reduce speed limits in urban areas for the same reason. And so what <clears throat> people will start seeing is these plans coming out to reduce speed limits, um, and so that it is something that's happening. I think it's accepted that it's probably not happening as fast as it should, but that's because people are, are, are engaging in that conversation. But assuming we we follow what the evidence is telling us that it will be beneficial, then we should start seeing speed limits coming down in well, different areas of the country where the roads are not suited to the speed limits we currently have. We should start to see that happening in the next um, year, 18 months. That was Professor Kingham, who spoke with us about reducing speed limits and how that will make our cities better places to live in. Classic journal question as well. Can I have a jaw? The wire. Last week, Greenpeace activists peacefully confronted a deep-sea mining ship off the coast of Manzanillo, Mexico, as it returned to port from the Pacific. Now, I spoke to James Heater, Greenpeace Aotearoa campaigner, on the matter, as well as how the impact of deep-sea mining, uh, has, sorry, the impact that deep-sea mining has on our environment, and what Greenpeace is calling for. Here he is now. Yeah, it was really intense. I think. We using from afar. We see the photo, videos. It doesn't compare to being there first and bearing witness as an indigenous person from the Pacific, and actually seeing the machine that is destroying the ocean and wants to do far more. Uh, so it was a it was a really moving and powerful moment for me to have the opportunity to send that message to the ship. Uh, and I'm glad that it was heard and that the crew on board uh, you know, read read that message and, and hopefully have seen it by as well. Now, what was it like working with the team at Greenpeace Mexico? Well, that was something that was really beautiful, I think. Um, you know, Greenpeace's uh, pros are that we have such a global presence and that we have the opportunity to build relationships across our organisation, right across the world. And it's funny, we made so many comparisons between like indigenous cultures in Oceania and the Pacific and Aotearoa and Mexico as well. Um, so it was really beautiful to connect on a really big level with them. Um, and we wouldn't have been able to do what we did without the team. The issue of deep sea mining could not be more significant now with COP27 finishing, I believe was it last week, and obviously it being in, in talks, but I guess nothing really set in stone in terms of decisive action just yet. Greenpeace was calling for a moratorium you know, to, to begin as early as July next year. The metals company, however, which I believe owns the Hidden Gem, the deep sea mining ship, says it does have plans to apply for a deep-sea mining license in 2023 via the International Seabed Authority. Yeah, you know, we're heading into these conversations around managed retreat and loss and damage. And, you know, as a young person, as someone who has already lost so much through the history of my people, it's really worrying to think that while we're trying to you know, deal with the climate crisis and, you know, we're getting somewhere but we're not getting somewhere very fast. At the same time, 
through processes that the United Nations are allowing to occur within the International Seabed Authority. Uh, you know, there's huge industry capture. The metals company has deep, significant relationships with the ISA and often get to sit in spaces where civil society are locked out. And they're accelerating down the road. They're flying towards deep sea mining and they know that it will cause huge destruction. Um, and they they try and justify it by using this, uh, you know, PR line of greenwash that it's going to advance the green transition, which is completely false and is just justification for destruction. Uh, but I, I really plead with everyone to understand that just as the oil and gas industries focused on their pathway and their narrative to make themselves money. That's what we're seeing here with deep sea mining as well. They're building a narrative and putting huge amounts of money into it to make sure that people are on their side. But we need people to see the truth. Now, for those who are unaware, Greenpeace has called on the New Zealand government to support a global ban on deep sea mining. Could you just outline the petition and the work that Greenpeace is doing at the moment? Yeah, the position's really important and um, our official position as Greenpeace is that we never want to see deep sea mining begin. Uh, it cannot be tolerated. There is no way for it to begin safely without causing huge and irreversible harm to the world's oceans. Um, we've been lobbying the government for a while on two issues, one being that they support a global ban um, and the Nahimahuta made the announcement not too long ago that uh, the New Zealand government is calling for a conditional moratorium, i.e. a moratorium until there is robust science backing any kind of regulations that are developed, um, which effectively could mean that deep sea mining doesn't ever go ahead if the, the regulations are backed by robust science, because that's what the science says. Um, but... We want that to go even further. We, we want to see New Zealand government support a global ban. Um, and we also, on the other hand, need to see a ban on seabed mining, uh, which is effectively the same process, in our own waters as well. Uh, we still have trans-Tasman resources uh, who were proven to, you know, their project was going to cause material harm to the world, to the New Zealand oceans. The Supreme Court said go back to the Environmental Protection Authority and, and reapply and see what happens. Um, so that's still there, and we're going to fight them at every step of the way, but Labor, Jacinda Ardern, need to ban seabed mining before the next election uh, and not play party politics with it as well. The seabed mining prohibition bill is up for reading sometime in the beginning of next year from Te Party Māori, and I really implore... Labour MPs to to support that bill and not play party politics with it. Now, what is the next step for Greenpeace? Is there any other action that Greenpeace is looking to take to spread the message further? Yeah, I think that's that's really key is is um, people understanding the issue and people being aware of it and people caring about it. So it's really important that we tell the story of how this is yet another colonial industry, extractive industry which is looking to take from the Pacific region, 
uh, and it needs to be stopped. Um, but my message to the metals company was one of protest and one of warning. You know, I said that we are persistent and we are courageous and to leave the seabed alone or Whitehall Papa Moana, um, and, and that was true. We will take action against them and we will not tolerate this industry. Um, obviously, I, I can't speak about what exactly that, that means, um, but they can be sure that we will oppose them at every step of the way. That was Greenpeace Aotearoa campaigner James Heater speaking about his peaceful confrontation with a deep-sea mining ship off the coast of Manzanilla, Mexico, last week. You're on the wire for Ramere Friday. Remember, you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 0930938793. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you have heard so far. We'll be right back after this short break. We don't agree with violence. We do not agree with the government. Ah! Nah, we do. The Wire. Drunken Piano, in association with 95BFM presents Automatic, live at Whammy Bar, January 15th. With their new album, Excess, out now on Stone's Throw, the Los Angeles trio are bringing their retro-futurist motoric pop to New Zealand for the very first time. One night only at Whammy Bar, January 15th. Get your tickets now from Under the Radar. What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club, there's... Tabani Kapata Project, Bobby Brazuka and Grantis. And tomorrow... Leandro Vasquez live, followed by DJs V and TDK. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Avars ye me hearties, away upon yonder desert isle a forgotten treasure awaits, riches beyond your ken that many a sailor has died in want of. Yar! It's the 95 BFM Summer Sorted Super Prize Pack, featuring... Return flights for two to Hawaii thanks to Hawaiian Airlines. A $300 voucher for Taddy's Designer Recycle. A Napoleon chili bin packed full of nice blocks and Little Island goodies with a refill delivered to an Auckland-based celebration of your choice. A $250 voucher for Mezzi Bar. A year's supply of Lion's Mane capsules from Flow State. A cheeky lifetime supply of cheeky clean toilet paper spray. $2,000 to spend at Galbraith's. A summer's supply of your daily brain drink thanks to Ardepa. An invite to all mad Man movie premieres and screenings for 2023. A six-month candle subscription from Crushes. A year's supply of Genevieve's premium sauces and dressings. A double pass to Womad. And more. B marks the spot for the summer sorted super prize pack. If you've got a squawker or woofer B card, you're already in to win. Twice. There's no limit on entries, but you've got to have a B card to win. For entry details and all the info, go to 95bfm.com. This is a sad, sad day. Um, BFM, the font of liberalism and tolerance at the <laughs> centre of the University of Auckland. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramene Friday. I will now pass it on to our producer, David. Blood glucose levels are traditionally measured by the finger prick method. A device will take a drop of blood from your finger between 6 to 10 times a day and will measure the glucose level in your blood. However, a new technology called a continuous glucose monitor will allow people with diabetes to go about their lives without having to stop multiple times a day to test the glucose levels. I spoke to Otago University professor Ben Wheeler about the technology. What is a continuous glucose monitor? 
Continuous glucose monitors are really the new gold standard way to measure glucose. So traditionally, uh, we've finger pricked uh, with a wee prick on the end of a finger to get blood. And then after a minute or two, you get a glucose value. Uh, Before that, you used to do urine testing. And so the new gold standard is a continuous glucose monitor. It's a little hair-thin filament that gets planted under the skin and then you wear a transmitter on top of the skin, you know, with some glue stuck to the skin, and that sends your glucose data to normally a mobile phone or an insulin pump. What looks like a phone or an iPod on the side of your belt? The insulin pump is a little bit like that, a little bit like a pager or a very small cell phone that you might wear on your belt, or some people, you know, tuck it in their clothes or in a, in a pocket. So that carries the insulin that delivers into your body to treat diabetes. The continuous glucose monitor is more like a sort of a $2 coin stuck on your arm. Uh, So sometimes you see people with a little patch on the back of their arm or on their belly, uh, and that's where they wear their continuous glucose monitor. The monitor is attached to your skin, and then it kind of is attached to the insulin pump, and it'll give a, like a little signal out, and then it will give a little pump of insulin. Is that correct? Yeah, well, that's right. well, it sends the signal to the pump via Bluetooth usually, so they're not actually physically connected, but they're all you know using you know transmitter functions to talk to each other. How often do people have to do the blood pricking finger procedure? Yeah, so before we had continuous glucose monitoring, we recommend that people test their finger prick glucose at least six to ten times a day. So so that means that they're stopping all of their activities, checking their glucose, and, and each time they do that, it takes a minute or longer, and so they're constantly stopping and starting their day uh, all, all the time. Uh, so continuous glucose monitoring gives them a continuous stream of data onto their mobile phone, so it can give... Uh, their you know minute to minute glucose, but it also gives alarms, so it can tell them when they're dangerously low, can tell them when they're dangerously high, uh, and it can also talk to the pumps so that they can have an artificial pancreas essentially, so become a cyborg. And so this means you wouldn't necessarily have to stop about six or ten times a day. You can you can just go about your day. Yeah, absolutely. It's life-changing for people with diabetes. You know, this is type 1 diabetes, life-changing for them to wear those sensors. Uh, that means that they, yeah, they can live their lives much more normally and also without fear. So the worry about hypoglycemia, seizures, collapsing, becoming unconscious, all of those things are largely prevented by wearing that modern technology. And so you said it's associated with type 1 diabetes, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So so type 1 diabetes is the type that, that children and young adults get. Uh, it, have, it occurs in about one in every 500 or so uh, children in, in New Zealand. Um, it's caused by the auto, by our immune systems uh, going a little bit overactive and attacking the cells in the body that make insulin. And so once those cells are destroyed, you develop diabetes because you can't make insulin anymore. The other main type of diabetes is type 2 diabetes, and that's you still make insulin, but the way the body responds to insulin isn't as good, so you have a resistance to the action of insulin, and, uh, and that's the type that most adults have, so at least 9 out of every 10 adults would have that type of diabetes. Because it's not funded by Pharmac, how much would it usually cost? 
Yeah, the very cheapest one. It's not um, what we call real time. It's slightly different. It costs about two to two and a half thousand dollars a year. Uh, finger pricking costs about a thousand dollars a year, or just under. Uh, and the the type of continuous glucose monitor we really want funded, it costs about four to four and a half thousand dollars a year. And is that because you have to replace what's inside? Is that essentially it? Yeah, that's right. It's a consumable, so that we sense uh, between every seven to fourteen days, you have to throw it away and put a new one on your body. They they stop working after a, a number of after seven to fourteen days, depending on the type. Though and those sensors now are funded pretty much everywhere that we compare ourselves to, but uh, New Zealand still lags miles behind. With regards to the continuous glucose monitor, you said it's like a $2 coin on your arm. Does it have like a battery in it? Yeah, it's got, it's got a very small battery, and that battery um, powers the, the electrical signals, but also the transmitter, which sends it to the pump. And you talked about a kind of a very small filament. Is that just underneath the skin, or is it attached to, say, a blood vessel? Or yeah, it's, it's just less than a centimetre long, and it's stuck in the fat that's underneath the skin. Um, and it's about the same width as a hair from your head. So it's very, very fine, very, very clever. And it just sits in the fat, so it doesn't really hurt to put that in. And there's a wee needle that helps insert that and then is pulled away. Uh, and it leaves that little filament behind body. That's quite incredible to have a needle the size of a hair. How does such a small piece of filament for glucose yeah. levels? Glucose, it's super clever. Basically, there's a chemical reaction that goes on in and around that wee filament. Little glucose um, passes through the, the little thin membrane around that filament. It causes a, a reaction and it makes um, hydrogen peroxide. And that hydrogen peroxide creates hydrogen ions, and those hydrogen ions create a little bit of electrical charge. And that electrical charge travels up the filament, and then the computer can turn it, the electrical signal into a glucose number. So it's extremely clever. When was it first designed and created? Well, we've been doing urine glucose testing. That was the first thing that happened in the 1940s and 1950s. Then from the 1980s, to 2014 or so, we primarily used finger pricking. And then in New Zealand from 2014 onwards, we've been increasingly using continuous glucose monitoring. So again, finger pricking to me now is a bit like um, urine testing in the old days. So, you know, it's, it's really um, the same sort of technological jump. You know, we, we sometimes laugh a little bit about the idea of people testing their urine for glucose. Well, in my mind, testing their finger prick for glucose glucose is a bit like that now. Does that usually happen with finger pricking, that it kind of has adverse effects on people with diabetes? Well, that's right. It's painful. It's slow, but it also scars the end of the fingers over time. You know, if you imagine you're doing that 10 times a day for, say, 80 years of your life, if you're lucky to live that long, uh, yeah, it can have damaging effects to the end of your fingers. That, that's probably the least of your worries, but it's a substantial burden uh, doing it. People with diabetes, type 1 diabetes in New Zealand at the moment, if you're diagnosed before the age of 10, they lose about 14 to 17 and a half years of their life. So very substantial uh, impact on their quality of life, but also on the years of their life. And that's really a reflection of traditional diabetes therapy. And so it's you know absolutely essential that we find better ways to manage diabetes uh, to reduce that substantial burden. 
That was Otago University Professor Ben Wheeler talking about continuous glucose monitors. Their relationships with their girlfriends or their wives. Wife. No one. They shouldn't have more than one wife at a time. Children's movies often enforce gender stereotypes, but they also hold the power to quickly shift them. This is also shown in a study from the University of Otago that was published last week. The title of the study, Power to the Princess. This princess is brave, bold and needs no prince. I spoke with lead author Anita Azim about the study and her findings. Could you describe to listeners what gender stereotypes are? Gender stereotypes are basically a structured set of beliefs about uh, how men and women should act. So, for instance, men are often thought to be more achievement-oriented, more independent, and more certain about they want to do, whereas women are generally thought of as more kind, helpful, and service-oriented. So these expectations are called gender stereotypes. When you meet someone for the first time, and uh, you find out that they're either a man or a woman, and you, you know, in your mind you categorize them as one of these. <clears throat> then if you start expecting them to behave in a certain manner, or if you start expecting that they be, uh, belong to a certain profession, then what's happening in your mind is you're, you basically uh, just, you know, your mind has certain stereotypes. You may not even be aware of them. Could you describe the experiment you did with your colleagues? So. What did the experiment that you yeah, did look sure. like? So in our experiment, we had children ranging from four years to 12 years, and that's a, quite a range. And then we divided them into different age groups just to examine whether our younger children are more malleable or you can shift beliefs more easily in more younger children or in older children. And what we found was that you can shift uh, beliefs more easily in the younger children. So anyway, what our experiment looked like was that we had two groups. One group was, uh, and this experiment lasted for three weeks. So for three weeks, children met the experimenter minute E. And half of the children who were in the control group were watching uh, traditional Disney movies like Snow White and Cinderella, in which uh, princesses were, you know, doing all the home-making stuff, baking pies and singing songs and cleaning up and stuff. And uh, the princes were uh, fighting. So it was very, very stereotypical representation of men and women that we showed the control group. And as opposed to that, in our other, in our experimental group, the children viewed uh, princesses who were very brave and who were uh, going out to fight, who were sword fighting, who were doing archery. And then we also showed men, princes. Uh, who were doing housework and who were taking care of others. So this was a very counter-stereotypical representation. So what we did was, before our experiment, we asked them certain questions about who they thought could be a nurse or who they thought could own a sports car and, and whether they thought uh, boys were intelligent or girls were intelligent. And then we recorded those uh, ratings. And then after three weeks, we repeated those questions again. And what we found was, that children who had been viewing the traditional Disney movies, they ended up believing more strongly that, you know, men and women have fixed roles. But children who had been watching the new prince and the new princesses and, you know, men taking care of others and women fighting, they were more open to, 
men and women were opportunities they have. So we were very fascinated because it was over a period of three weeks and we had only met the children three times in those three weeks. So it was a very brief exposure if you think about it. But even that brief exposure resulted in, in, in a somewhat change in attitude. What was exactly the change of attitude you discovered? Yeah, so the change of attitude was that the children who had been viewing prince and princesses doing uh, non-stereotypical tasks, like had they seen princes fighting and the prince doing housework, were more open to the idea that men and women can take any profession they want, and they both men and women can be intelligent, and that both men and women can be brave and strong. But those children who had not watched these cartoons were thinking that, no, only men can be brave and only women can do caretaking tasks. So they were very rigid in their beliefs. Why did you choose for Disney movies? Um, I chose Disney movies because they are very popular with the children and because most parents think that, um, you know how children are mostly very, uh, how parents are mostly very careful about content that their children are viewing. But Disney movies are often viewed uh, by parents as something very naive and sweet and something that wouldn't, uh, that, you know, wouldn't be problematic. But as our research so shows, if you do show them stereotypes, gender stereotypes in movies, then that can be problematic. So the whole idea was to bring more awareness to content creators and to parents and to educators about what content children should be viewing. Could you describe an example of a Disney movie? A scene maybe when it's really clear that stereotypes are used? Yeah, sure. So Daniel, you take any Disney movie from the past two decades, especially from two decades ago, and there will be The Sleeping Beauty, where the woman has to be rescued by a prince, um, the Snow White. So in most, in Cinderella, in most of these movies, in traditional movies, the woman, the princess, has to be rescued. She's a damsel in distress, and there has to be a hero that comes and rescues her and saves her from distress. So basically, Disney in the past has been showing princesses as very incompetent and very dependent on the prince. So they can't save themselves. They have to keep waiting for a prince to come and save them, to rescue them, to kiss them, and then they'll be back from their sleep and stuff like that. But recently, we have seen characters like Moana, like uh, Merida from the movie Brave, and then Princess Anna and Elsa from Frozen. And you see that they are somewhat uh, changing away, steering away from the stereotypical princesses. And these princesses, the new ones, Disney is trying to show them as more agentic, as more independent, as more brave. Could you tell a bit more about what are the consequences for society if children watch these movies? Well, I think the most important and the most significant consequences are that children learn to limit themselves. So if little girls uh, watch princesses and then eventually start copying those princesses and start believing that they need to be helped, they need to be rescued, and that there are certain limitations to what they can do, then they w may be limited in what they do in life. So, for example, they may be more interested in uh, physical appearance or they might even be to the point of obsessed with those ideas, and that can lead to psychological problems. 
and same for boys they start to, they may also start limiting themselves and thinking that these are certain things that only girls do and these are certain things that only boys do and we don't want our children to be growing up with those with those thought patterns or with those feelings we want them to be able to explore whatever they want to do do you have any advice for parents how they can help their children overcome gender stereotypes yeah absolutely i think parents have a huge part to play because uh, since the child since the time a child is born um, parents are creating a certain environment and are communicating to their children certain ideas certain beliefs parents should also be very careful about what their children are watching because media because children today have such um such a wide access to media and media channels they can be watching a number of different things so parents should be mindful of what they are letting their children uh, consume that was anita azim lead author of the study power to the princess a study showing a speedy way to reduce gender stereotypes that was the wire Ko ere te hautaka katoa mō tēne wiki, ne te mihi ki a koutou katoa e korero mau ki o mou tēne rā. And that is a wrap on The Wire for Ramere Friday. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us today. Greenpeace's James Heater, Dr Nick Munn from the University of Waikato, uh, the White Ribbon Day Ambassador Floyd Ormsby, who spoke with our news director here, Jess Hopkins, Professor of Human Geography Simon Kingham, Anita Azim from the University of Otago, as well as Ben Wheeler, also from the University of Otago. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to 95BFM. I will now leave you, leave you with the 1 to 2, the land of the good groove. Matewa. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.